In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Good evening, welcome. Welcome, Dewi. Can you hear us? So uh, tonight we delve into uh, probably the most, well, one of the most important parts of the text, of the, of the whole material. So it's about time. It's funny, in the tradition that I studied with the uh, Tarta Institute, the Kagyu tradition, um, we did this part of the material much earlier. Uh, it, it just sort of helps you understand the whole framework of the understanding of mind and all the different aspects. But anyway, better late than never. So we're on page 235, which is the uh, introduction to part four by John Dunn. Part four is mind and its objects. And uh, first we have a little uh, technical note about um, the source of the material. And let's see, basically identifying that um, there's, uh, of course, the tradition begins with Dignaga and Dharmakirti. Uh, different sources then for the Abhidharma material, which was Vasubandhu and Asanga. And um, the uh, uh, John Dunn notes that the, uh, in the middle of the paragraph, the way the material is structured and interpreted reflects nuances and innovations articulated by Tibetan scholars themselves. Here we encounter especially the influence of the renowned scholar Chapa Chuki Senge, who lived in the uh, 12th century and whose work on numerous issues figures prominently in this discussion. And uh, he was famous for uh, creating a certain interpretation of the system of uh, classifications of mind or loric, this material, and uh, tarik, the classifications of reasons or reasoning in the Tibetan tradition, as well as Madhyamaka, translating uh, Chandrakirti's introduction to the middle way and bringing that into prominence or beginning the process that ended up with its prominence in the Tibetan tradition. Our authors note that Chapa's opinions were at points controversial and his views received especially unhappy. Is that what that means? Trenchant criticism from, uh, or entrenched, right? Trenchant criticism from Sakya Pandita Kunga Jelson, who was a, a great logician of the, obviously of the Sakya school and his followers. And so we have the Sakya and the 
Kagyu who, uh, sorry, the Sakya and the Galukpa who don't really follow uh, Chapa, I believe. And they say, so there's uh, controversial uh, points introduced by Chapa that are not universally accepted by all the schools. And uh, however, so these authors coming from the Galupa school are going to pick and choose to some extent which version of the of this information of mind and its objects that they'll present, but they'll try to be a little bit uh, eclectic and present the range of options. So in the first half, they examine the varieties of objects along. So skipping, I skipped a few sentences along with related issues such as the role of images in cognition and the nature of conceptuality. In the second half of the part of this part uh, four, our authors turn to the sevenfold typology of cognition. And he'll examine some of these issues. So on the next page, 236, images. Although earlier precedents can be cited, the Indian Buddhist epistemological tradition, i.e. pramana, so that's a broad translation of the Tibet, of the Sanskrit term pramana. It's generally traced back to Dignaga and Dharmakirti in the 6th and 7th centuries through the works of various commentators, critics, interpreters. Dharmakirti becomes primarily influential for later Indian Buddhism and its transmission to Tibet. So Dignaga begins the whole tradition of looking at this, uh, of this way of looking at our experience in the world and writes a series of texts. And uh, um, I think two generations removed from him, we have Dharmakirti who sort of systematizes it, the uh, presentation of uh, Dignaga. And uh, in particular comes up with the texts called the Commentary on Valid Cognition, Pramana Vartika, Vartika, and uh, that becomes the main text for the tradition. So his condensation or systematization, systemization of Tignaga's initial presentation. And it's, they're similar, they're not identical, uh, but it's not the new, the differences are, are nuances from our point of view, I believe. Um, let's see, to understand the Dharmakirtian account, it is helpful to begin with a relatively straightforward example of, of an ordinary person's visual sense perception. Dharmakirti and his followers hold that sense perception is a causal process, no surprise, and several conditions are required for visual perception to occur. Some material, visible stuff must be present. <laughs> There must be some visibles in order to have a visual cognition or perception, rather. Other external conditions such as adequate light must be involved. Various mental factors, including the basic level of attention, must be active contact between the subject, between, sorry, the object and the sense faculty must occur in some way and so on. When all the requisite preconditions are in place, an image. And uh, he doesn't acknowledge, unfortunately, that image implies a sense of visual consciousness, but each of the five senses operate in the same way by having a, a representation of the um, object 
of cognition or perception in the sense faculty. Okay, an image. Now in Sanskrit, the word, word is akara for an image. And um, where ph phenomenological form of the object is generated in visual consciousness. Dharmakirti indicates that this image is not just a mirror image of the object. Excuse me. Since it varies across individuals owing to such factors as the acuity of their sense faculties and their currently active interests, or i.e. predispositions, and their affective states, their state of mind. Simultaneously, simultaneously, simultaneous with this object image, a subject image must also arise. So, first we have the uh, basic idea of an image, a kara, and um, when we uh, fine-tune that idea of an image, we split it into there's the object image, the image that the object itself projects to us, so to speak. And then there's the subject image, which is the recreation of, or the reception of that projection in our sensory faculties. Simultaneous with the object image, a subject image must also arise. The, sub, the subject image accounts for the phenomenological sense of consciousness or knowing that accompanies the experience and is also part of the subject object structure, the sense of in here, out there. These images of the object and of the object, sorry, of the subject and of the object arise simultaneously in the moment of visual perception, which is interesting. So the, uh, it's not like the object image then uh, awakens a, a subject image, but the sensory object projects some uh, what you might call data to the sensory faculty and it um, uh, at the same time creates the object image, the feeling that there's an object that exists in a certain way and the feeling of there being an experience of that object, which is the subject. Um, the subject image. Now, um, this is the basic framework, and there's uh, subtleties in what we just described, and variations in that. And as he says, there's a lot of different views on, on, on this, and a lot of different ways of describing it, and a lot of different translations for this. And oh, I made a mistake of, uh, Cynthia had sent me, let's see, a chart. I forgot to. Cynthia, if you're here, maybe you could share it with all of us, please. A chart of the different uh, objects. Here we go.
Oh, that's actually something that we have to come back to. That was uh, that stanza, that threefold typology of uh, cognition with slight analysis, medium level of analysis, and uh, extensive analysis. Do you want me to share it now or later? No, let's do it later. And I found it. I, I have. I did it. find it, but uh, if I can share it, but if it's not the right time. Can, can you hear me? Okay. I can. Yeah. So I, I said, let's let's. It's it's actually not uh, relevant to these different types of objects, but it's sort of the conclusion of the whole the whole thing. So we'll come back to it when we conclude this section. Uh, let's see. Those the images of the subject and the object arise simultaneously, and for a tiny fraction of a section, those images are presented without any categorization or conceptualization. So tiny fraction of a second means a moment, and there's a moment of direct cognition. Of uh, There's the sense cognition called perception, and then there's uh, mental sense cognition, in this case also direct without concept, so mental sense perception. Perception being the term that these authors are using for uh, direct cognition without concept. Here we should add that this involves a particular meaning of conceptualization that we'll discuss further below. Our authors note that the earlier models in the Abhidharma do not accept the notion that perception is mediated by images or phenomenal forms, but for the epistemological tradition established by Dignagadharmakirde, an object image and a subject image are necessarily present in any moment of ordinary consciousness. Some crucial features of this model may already be evident first in the most straightforward account, forward rather account of uh, Dharmakirti's model, which is directly presented in a moment of sense consciousness. What is directly presented in a moment of sense consciousness is not the visible thing, so to speak, itself. Instead, it's an image or a phenomenal form presented in consciousness. So when I see an object that I identify as blue, for example, the blue color that I'm directly experiencing is not the thing outside my head, painted or dyed blue um, or colored blue by nature, but uh, it is an image within my consciousness. Second, my identification of that object as blue does not occur in the moment of perception itself. So perception itself does not classify, it's silent. Uh, that conceptualization occurs as a perceptual judgment or labeling process, we call it, or subsequent cognition, meaning the next moment of cognition after an initial direct cognition. That conceptualizes the image after the initial perception. Note the word perception. The perceptual image and the consciousness in which it occurs are thus completely non-conceptual. The third key feature here is that perceptions do not occur in a vacuum. They're filtered and are defined by the interests, goals, and dispositions active in the mind for Dharmakirti and so forth. A perception can count as a valid cognition only if it can produce a subsequent cognition that provides epistemologically reliable information about the object in a way relevant to my goals, which is a convoluted and complicated way of saying only if the uh, 
initial perception can produce a correct uh, conceptual identification, understanding, and utilization of the object. So it's not valid unless it results in a clear comprehension of the object, which, which is a very interesting point because we know from uh, neuroscience these days that there's zillions of different sense perceptions going on at any one time and we're not cognizing all of them, which they don't get into here, but it has something uh, related to this. It has some relation to this. Thus, even though my perception is an image in consciousness, my perception must enable me to act on the cause of that image, a causally efficacious object, which was the cause of the image, that is relevant to my goals. Relevant to my goals is a high-fluting way of saying that uh, is in sync with my intention of like knowing or uh, identifying the object. In a sense, what I directly see is just an image in my mind, but no organism is just interested in mental images. We wish to encounter opportunities and avoid dangers. If the image caused by the object cannot lead me to an act, to act on causally efficient stuff, and not just images in my mind, in ways that enable me to achieve those goals, then perception would be pointless. One important feature of this system is that it posits the distinction between the image presented in sense consciousness and the object that caused the image. That was pretty obvious from the start. And he already mentioned that, but uh, in other words, this model involves a kind of gap between the phenomenal image and its cause, an approach that in Western philosophy would be akin, would be akin to a sense data theory. The image might be something such as the presentation of a red object in awareness with a particular shape that we conceptualize as an apple, and the cause would be the actual apple. Some interpreters of Dharmakirti, such as Chapa, attempt to close the gap. So this is a fine point that he goes into here. And uh, it's a gap between the object image and the subject image. Um, which is not that huge a, a point, but um, attempt to close this gap even to the point that by reinterpreting Dharmakirti's notion of the object image in particular ways, the image's role as a mediator, a bridge between material stuff and immaterial consciousness is reduced or eliminated. So this is confusing and uh, I think I'm going to skip this. Can I ask a question? I, I, you said there was a, a closing the gap between the object and subject, but I thought they were talking about closing the gap between the outer object and the image, the so-called inner image. Which is what I thought they were saying as well. And that made sense to me because then you could have direct perception. Uh, uh, right. So I'm sorry, it's between the object and the object image and not the subject image. But but they uh, sort of eliminate the um, there being a, an object image as well as a subject image. Uh, 
which just simplifies the situation because this distinction between an object image and a subject image in within the sense consciousness is a confusing idea that there's like two images in there. So Chapa just just simplifies that into one object, uh, into one image. Uh, so where the gap between the object and the object image and consciousness is thereby reduced or eliminated. And uh, so if we continue like the census is however, as George Dreyfus has noted, Dharmakirti's earliest Indian interpreters tend to assume a stronger version of this gap and thus in historical terms the topology of objects discussed by our authors arose in response to interpreters who assumed a clear gap between the object and the object image. Let us now examine the typology of objects. Okay, and the, with an eye to clarifying how it seeks to reduce that gap between the object and object image, Mary Beth. No. Types of objects. Based on Dharmakirti's account, fully elaborated by Indian and Tibetan interpreters, the topology of objects presented by authors is fourfold. The appearing object, the observed object, the conceived object, and the engaged object. The interpretation of these categories varies, and not all Buddhist epistemologists use this typology or accepted it. Dharmakirti and his earliest interpreters did not explicitly use this typology and they lacked the technical term appearing object. However, they do refer to the object image as an appearance in awareness. This stands in contrast to the observed object. Uh, they do refer to the object image as an appearance in awareness. This stands in contrast to the observed object, the thing that causes an appearance or object image to arise in a moment of perception. Thus, if Dharmakirti's earliest interpreters were to use this fourfold model, they would say that the first two types of objects, the appearing and the observed, should be distinct. But following, um, Following Chapa, our authors collapse the gap between the object and the object image and the appearing object and the observed object are thus synonymous. Which is a good thing because the distinction between the two is confusing and uh, a very fine distinction that's not actually that clear. So, uh, in lieu of being interpreted as, as what causes an object image in a perception, the observed object is precisely what is directly apprehended by a sense consciousness. And that object is also the appearing object in that it is cognized by that consciousness by way of appearing to it. So we um, uh, 
the observed object is what is directly apprehended by a sense consciousness. So a sense consciousness sees the observed object, which is why it's called an observed object, since it was observed by consciousness. And that object is uh, within the sense faculty and not the outer object. And that object is also the appearing object in that it is cognized by that consciousness by way of appearing to it. So uh, they're going to uh, suggest, and uh, most of the tradition in Tibet that I'm aware of follows this suggestion, is that the um, object image and the uh, appearing object are the same, one and the same. So far, we've been discussing the topology of objects in relation to perception, so direct non-conceptual cognition, which is necessarily non-conceptual for the Buddhist epistemologist to understand the third type of object. The conceptual object, we must examine conceptual cognition. Conceptual cognitions involve mental objects such as the conceptual, conceptual image of a pot as presented in the thought, this is a pot. <coughs> Here, this is a pot. This is a little pot. Can you see the pot? It's like a little urn. I use it to burn sort of incense in it. It's cool. I have no idea where I got it, but it appeared. That's why it's the appearing pot. <laughs> it appears. <laughs> so it appears. Uh, let's see. This conceptual pot is both the appearing object and the observed object of that conceptual cognition. Now we just went through the whole process of agreeing that the, um, the appearing and, and observed object are the same in a perception as well. Oh, they're using the term observed, sorry. Um, I back, I, uh, yeah, the observed object is the outer object. So um, this conceptual pot is both the appearing object and the observed object, right? The observed object of a conceptual consciousness occurs in the mental sense faculty. It's not outside as in the case of an apple which was the example used initially for uh, non-conceptual sense perception, right? So the, um, the observed object is the thought of a pot, the general idea of a pot, and that is also what appears in the sense conscious, the mental sense consciousness. And uh, this is what that cognition directly apprehends. That conceptual pot, however, is presented as referring to or simply being the same as some real pot in the world, right? So when I hold up this pot, you go, we all go, oh, that's a pot, and we develop an image of a pot in our mind. And so uh, by labeling it pot, by saying it's a pot, we're now dealing with the conceptual image of pot in our 
conceptual in our mental sense consciousness but the the concept of pot that we all have refers to that actual thing that i held up so some conceptual objects refer to actual uh, what, what we would call specifically characterized phenomena so the image the object of a conceptual consciousness is this generally characterized phenomena. And in some cases, it points to a specifically characterized phenomena. As such, that real pot is the conceived object of the conceptual cognition. So it's, it's called by different terms depending on the translators. Here we have the conceived object. Often we'll see the referent object the object that the concept refers to. Here they're saying it's the object that is being conceived is that actual thing that I held up, but we're conceiving of it as being one of a class of things that we call pots. In other words, it is what that conceptual cognition is guiding us to. In part, this means that the thought of, it, of a unicorn, which is a little odd that he shifted and immediately but he says in part this means that the thought of a unicorn which is a non-existent um, does not truly have a conceived object since there's no real thing to which he can refer in this way so the conceived object of the idea of unicorns is an actual unicorn and since as far as we know there are no actual unicorns the uh, conceived object is not is a non-existent okay so we've been through the first three objects going back to the types of objects we had appearing object and observed object so the appearing object is what appears in the consciousness the observed object is uh, the thing that causes the appearing object or object image to arise in the in the consciousness i.e the outer object and now we have the fourth uh sorry and the third was the conceived object and now we have the engaged object the fourth type of object the engaged object is what a cognition is prompting us to act upon whether through physical actions or additional mental activity. A conceptual cognition prompts us to engage in this way precisely by presenting its mental objects as the conceived object, as some real thing in the world. A perceptual cognition being non-conceptual has no conceived object. Instead, it directly presents its content, the observed object, as something for us to act upon. And in a comparison to a conceptual cognition, a perceptual cognition has a kind of vividness that is especially relevant to prompting action on its engaged object. So, uh, the engaged object is the actual object that we're, uh, we're concerned with. And um, there's, there's only an engaged object when uh, the engaged object is a uh, uh, specifically characterized phenomenon. 
So the object of a direct uh, of a perceptual cognition is by definition a, a specifically characterized phenomena, whereas a conceptual cognition can have either a specifically or um, a specifically characterized phenomena as its um, purpose object, let's say, or it can have a generalized generally characterized non-existent, in which case there's no engaged object, but just the conceived object of a unicorn. Eric. Uh, yes. Sorry. Can't you engage with a thought, a perceptual object? Uh, you can you can you can most certainly engage with the thought, but that is called the uh, apprehension of that thought. I thought the engaged object turned on action. Uh, the engaged object is what you want to act upon. And you're not acting upon a thought? Uh, uh, the thought can be considered to be the causal agent of action, but, but not um, the object of that action. I see. Okay. Yeah, so just ter just terminology. We're really saying the same thing. It's just a matter of uh, giving them different names. So if the thought of, oh, the, the stove, I left the stove on, which is certainly a conceptual um, ob object in mind, then will lead you to get up and turn off the stove. But if the thought is, oh, I feel jealous, I ought not to feel so jealous. I need to work on not being jealous. That's not acting on the thought. That's acting on something else. You're working, it's, uh, I, uh, theoretically, you're working on the jealousy. Yeah, yeah, okay, got it. Thank you. Right, and so in this case, in this scheme, jealousy, is jealousy specifically characterized or, or generally characterized phenomena? <laughs> I guess generally characterized, unless I want to tell you what I'm jealous about. <laughs> Actually, in this system, jealousy is a mental factor, and mental factors are specifically characterized. Oh, so then you could be acting on that, no? That, that's what I said in response to your situation. I said you would actually be working on the jealousy. So yeah, run, run through your example again. Let's say I'm feeling jealous of that person who has a bigger, who has an ice cream cone and I don't, right? Right. I'm just trying to, I guess, make a distinction between um, the stove is still burning. I guess the thought is, oh, the stove is still burning. That's the engaged object. I need to turn off the stove. The engaged object is the stove, the right. stove that's on, right? right. And the thought is, oh, I'm jealous of this bigger ice cream cone. I'm not working on getting a bigger ice cream cone for myself or reducing the size of his. I'm simply working on not feeling jealous. Right, right. And so the, the mental factor of jealousy is the engaged object because it's it's a specifically characterized phenomenon, just ah. like the stove. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it, thank you. Yeah, so we're in the realm of uh, mental factors are existent phenomena. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Cynthia. I'm still a little confused in, in, the, in the explanation. It seems like a couple of the different ones were referred to as if they were the outer object. And so I'm not entirely sure which one is in fact the so-called outer object. Because I thought at one point you mentioned that the observed one is the outer object. And at another point, it seemed like they were saying that the conceived is the outer object because of the unicorn example. So I'm not entirely sure of just that basic. Yeah, so let's go through that. That's, that's, we, uh, we definitely got to go through this at least one more time, if not two more. I, and when you were describing the observed and you said it was directly apprehended by the sense consciousness, but you said it was within the sense faculty. So I was assuming that the observed then is more like the image, not the actual outer thing. That was my interpretation of what, how you described it. And that, but, and then when the way they described the, the thought of a unicorn does not have a conceived object because there's no real thing that would suggest that the conceived object is the, so-called real thing yeah okay so uh the the observed object is the um is the collection of characteristics that are projected towards an observer by a potential object of engagement so an apple has a color and a shape and maybe a smell, depending on the situation. And that those are what are observed. And the engaged object is the sort of possessor of those characteristics. Does that help? Okay, so that, that does seem like the, the observed object is more that which is projected into your faculty. Well, I think the characteristics are what are projected in. So the apple. Okay, you said you just said it was the collection of characteristics. So, so it's so it's a the, set of characteristics. The redness, the that shape. It comes. Those, to, those are observed. Those are all observed objects. The, the color red is observed. The shape is observed. The smell is observed, and. And the engaged object is the apple that possesses the red color and the round shape and the taste. Uh-huh. Uh, so that's saying that the engaged is the outer, but then where is the conceived? Um, in, in the case of a conceptual cognition that, uh, let's see, so... Um, is, is a conceived one only in conceptual and not in the other? That's correct. Okay. All right. That, that may answer it then. Yeah, I, I, which, is, okay. which is the idea of calling it the conceived object. Right. And so then the, in a sense, then the observed is not an observed object. It's an observed, it's like a multiple. It's, it's the observed uh, uh, sensory um, collection of characteristics. But collection of characteristics. In other words, it's not, a, it's, not a thing, it's not like the apple. It's the 
set of disc of characteristics that we interpret as an apple. Uh, that's that's right. So you can never as oh. being possessed by the apple. Yeah, you can't say that you're actually perceiving the apple, or rather, that shorthand for perceiving the characteristics of the object. That's the conclusion. Thank you. So let's let's repeat that. Is that the sensory cognition sees the observed object, which is the color, shape, or sound, or smell, or taste, or texture of a, of an object, and then through that uh, we know um, the the engaged object. You know, like if if uh, if we're looking for an apple in a basket of fruit, and there's pears, and there's oranges, and there's bananas and apples in the basket, let's say. Our eyes see the shape and the color of an apple, and therefore we're able to engage it by grabbing it because we've correctly identified it through its observed objects of the observed object is the, the color, the shape, and so forth. And the color and shape and so forth, each of them projects into consciousness a different image or akara or um, object image or subject. Uh, they, they've, uh, we're, we're wrapping the, this, this distinction that they entered in forget about object image subject image there's the image in the consciousness so the apple possesses color and shape and we see the color and shape in the basket uh, enter into our visual consciousness and create a uh, an image of redness and shape round shapeness in our visual cognitive system and based on that, we know there's an apple there, and that apple becomes the uh, object of engagement of that sense consciousness. So the sense consciousness is um, it's a little bit of an anomaly, which they don't really point out. And it's, it's good that you've brought this out, is that the observed object is, uh, sorry, the observed object is what the senses see. And the engaged object is what the senses are getting to by using the observed characteristics. And it's really that really true that you have to go through the conceptual cognition in order to put it together. Although there is an argument for there being automatic sense perception that occurs without uh, it, it's like reflexive sense perception, like there's a, like a hot stove, like um, uh, you uh, slip in the kitchen and you're falling towards the stove and your perceptual system sees the round redness on the stove and pulls your hand away from that part of the stove as you try to stop yourself from falling. You don't have, it's so fast you didn't think stove on, you know, right? But generally, like in the case of the apple, the observed object is the color and shape, and that creates an image of that color and shape in the sense consciousness. And then the next moment is mental 
cognition which conceives of an apple and uh, you're, you know, you're, you're looking at the various objects in the basket and you see the colors of the banana and the pear and the orange and the shapes of them. And you've come there with the decision that you're going to get an apple and you find the apple and you grab and you reach the apple. And uh, so the conceived object is the apple. The engaged object of the sense cognition is called the apple as well. So then in the perceptual realm, you still think, talk about a conceived object also, but it's the same as the engaged or? It's, it's uh, well, you know, the perceptual system doesn't have concepts. Right, I, I'm sorry, I, I meant that, but in the process of, that you just described, you go from the perceptual, and then at some point you said there's a, a engagement of, of concept that I think there is in, in like identifying oh apple right but so, then I went through the scenario of with the stove where right. you might bypass it or it yeah. goes so fast that you don't know yeah it. yeah so a sensory the sensory system can have an engaged object that's not also the conceptual object it, it would be easier to say that it happens so fast that you don't register it rather than say it's an alternative mode Right, right. That's you know, what I was thinking. Bring yeah, it to conception. Right. That also would be an example of a vivid. When, when That's what they're talking about. The very the vivid is kind of, of shortens everything else. Two thirty-six. So at Which the bottom of two thirty-six, it says a perceptual cognition, being non-conceptual, has no conceived object. Instead, it directly presents its content, the observed object color shape as something for us to act upon burning hot stove and in comparison to a conceptual cognition a perceptual cognition has a kind of vividness that is especially relevant to prompting action on its engaged object like a, a something lands on you and you've swatted off before even like thinking about it right it's just like so quick and then when you have that vivid is that a direct perception or is that something else the the vividness is a quality of all direct perceptions okay. they're trying to point that out they don't quite say that but yeah, it doesn't. Uh, but it says a perceptual cognition has a kind of vividness. So they don't say all, but it really is. All perceptual cognitions have a kind of vividness that is especially relevant to prompting actions on its engaged objects. From a strictly epistemological standpoint, this category of the engaged object may seem redundant since it is not directly connected to questions of truth or justification, but Buddhist thinkers are interested in more than just the conditions that make co a cognition epistemologically reliable. Their theories are also informed by keen interest in the mechanisms involved in our behaviors and the role that cognitions play. I, I didn't find that helpful <laughs> at that point. <laughs> I should have skipped that. So, but this is the, the skipping that part. We have the basic framework that there's conceptual cognition, 
and there's sense cognition and sense cognition is direct non-conceptual and that quality of being non-conceptual has a vividness in it so they're using this term vividness as an as a qualifier of all perceptual non i.e non-conceptual cognitions are all vivid because they're not sort of dimmed by the conceptual associative judgmental process cynthia i'm just curious about that i mean, i understand in one sense that you know things we see or hear or whatever have a vividness but on the other hand, when you think about you know, how people experience, say, emotions, intense emotions, isn't there a certain vividness in that experience also, even though not of a uh, seemingly physical nature? Yeah, so there's a, a, they're experienced by mental sense cognition in that first moment that's non-conceptual, that's direct and perceptual. I just I just wondered whether you know they they make this emphasis as if the sensory is more vivid than the the somewhere uh, in there they, they don't say they don't say sensory they don't say sensory they don't say perceptual perceptual they don't say sensual sensual they say perceptual I'm all right okay right? but isn't so I, the the mental the sixth consciousness has two aspects to it it has perceptual and conceptual which you know yeah <laughs> so is an experience of an emotion considered perceptual then or conceptual the initial experience of it is perceptual okay. and Got then it. the next moment it becomes if okay. you stay with it then it becomes no, uh, non-perceptual or okay, conceptual. So basically you're talking about the first part of any um, experience, even mental, is perceptual. Could That's be perceptual. right. Well, see, see, when you say the first part, the sense consciousnesses don't have any other part. Right. right. <laughs> so it's all, all of the sense consciousness and then that part of the mental consciousness, right. that first little slice, which it's not really half it's like <laughs> gotcha yeah very small and when, we talk, when we're talking about a non-sensory but you're saying that the the an emotional one you're saying there's a the initial moment of perception perception of the emotion prior to conceptual right okay thanks so uh this is sort of key and <laughs> it, it, it's it's funny that uh it's such a uh, hard thing to sort of lay out, you know, like, I don't, I don't know if many of you hopefully remember Pete Bragg. He and I like did many charts on this and none of them really hold up because every source that you go to uses different terminology and different scheme. And it's like, okay, it just gets more confusing if you have <laughs> a different scheme so you have to stay with whatever scheme is being presented and in this scheme we have this fourfold thing so so just one more time let's go through it um and, and it's like the force the the thing that sort of makes it uh more complicated is that the the um the third object is doesn't exist in a in a sensory cognition so sensory cognition has an observed object, which is the color, shape, or sound. 
of a phenomena and that is then replicated in this in the sensory faculty and becomes the appearing object and the causal agent of the observed object which were the sense features is the engaged object the so-called thing itself so you know in some ways it'd be simpler to start with the thing itself and then that has certain qualities which are observed and based on that there's a replication in the sensory faculty called the appearing object and when it's a mental conceptual cognition it has the appearing object in the, the uh, cognition let's see how do they um, let me not screw this up before you switch to that one then the other, one question in terms of the observed which is the characteristics that we're observing all right yes so there are multiple as we talked about before shape color etc yeah. replicated in the sense faculty as multiple and then or or as one i'm not sure and then it becomes the appearing object at that point is the appearing object like one object is it a sense of apple as opposed to red uh, you know and round or is it that the characteristics come and stay separate like where does it merge into being the notion of one thing um I, I think it's it's pretty clear that it merges in the conceptual consciousness. So that would be at the point of the engaged object? Well, once again, you can engage an object without conceptualizing it if it's uh, reflexive, right? So, so some some responses to phenomena are so quick that they don't activate the conceptual cognition and they remain um, uh, the engaged object is gotten at by the sensory system without going through the conceptual okay so in that case i'm wondering whether it's like we the observed is red round red yeah right? And it gets, you know, it becomes an appearing object somehow in our sense faculty. But separate, out, but separate them out. It projects red round into your visual system, right? Mm -hmm, and, right? And let's say it has a smell and that's projected into your smell sensory system, right? If you want to make it more complex, I was trying to keep it simple, but that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. But and then you're, you're touching it. Three and... characteristics that have come. Right into sense faculties yeah and so then i mean the, and essentially we reach out and grab the red round thing right that's the engaged object right uh, the red round thing the thing that possesses the characteristics of red and round is then the engaged object that's right. correct right so so basically whether we think about it as apple or not we could reach out and grab that red round. Exactly. Right. So Good. I was, I, yeah, okay. So I was just curious because they always talk about these things as objects, but what I'm hearing now with all this is that it's not a single object, it's multiple characteristics that are being referred to as the observed object, but which makes it sound like a 
a single thing, but it's actually many things or many. Yeah, well, they're trying. They're trying to simplify it. I, you know, I complicated it by having different senses involved, but they're trying to simplify as just a visual system. You know, which is I think where they started, right? But even if you do visual system, you still have you know red and round. That's two. But it's not. Do we? So I'm just kind of curious as whether they get put together in at the stage of appearing object, or whether there's you know whether it sort of at some point comes together as one in this process or not. I'm just a curiosity. Well, what they what they're not uh, getting at here is like the they haven't really linked this up with the skandhas and the mental factors as represented in the skandhas. You know, we know there's feeling, and feeling is the sensation of uh, sense objects. Feeling is not limited to touch right we're all on board with that hopefully right feeling happens with all the senses feeling happens with every moment of cognition including mental cognition we feel the thought <laughs> right because it's basically just kind of a like dislike right level, right so. right and then there's this discrimination the skanda of discrimination, and that's in the mental factors of, uh, I believe, it's it's probably in the, in the omnipresent ones. All right, so that's the next one. And you get different presentations of that, whether there's a recognition of the object or of the color. You know, what level of recognition happens at the level of discrimination? is uh there's many there's different views on that some mm -hmm. is that discrimination is uh is uh has eyes but no brain you know that sort of thing right so it, that means it's still red and round but it's not an apple right and and it's the color is not you know whether the color is labeled or not right okay but it yeah it's redness as we perceive it there's a color there's a color there's a shape Mm -hmm. Those those are registered, but they're not registered as something. Whereas other other people interpret discrimination as having some level of of labeling, like a a bare recognition type of labeling. So it's up for debate, you know. So they're laying out a structure that then lets you sort of explore those different options, mm -hmm. and and just trying to sort of map out what happens in cognition so let's look at actually now the the natarta institute presentation of these objects i'm going to pull pull that up on screen and it's going to have slightly different terminology and let's see if by uh, understanding the way they present it we can get an understanding of the system in general that's that's uh, strong enough to be flexible to bend when we encounter different terminologies for the different aspects of it. Uh, but but first we should be clear on this one. Is everybody fairly okay with like, the appearing object is in the sense faculty. The outer, the observed object is what enters into the sense faculty. And the um, the observed object is presented by the object of engagement 
and in the case of a conceptual cognition, the, the uh, conceived object can either be an object of engagement if it exists, or it can not be an object of engagement if it doesn't exist. People relatively comfortable with that? Does that also mean that in a sense that, as you just said, the conceived can also be the engaged if there is a, such a thing? Yeah. And, and that in the and that the first two you said earlier were also sometimes sort of not that different, the appearing and the observed. So in a sense, the four in some ways can can be wrapped. Yeah. Well, in a conceptual cognition. So uh, let's see in the in page. And, and let's take the time and go through this actually. So page 239, the first full paragraph. So far, we've been discussing the topology of objects in relation to perception, i.e. direct non conceptual cognition. That happens in the senses and in the first moment of mental cognition, right? Which is necessarily non-conceptual for Buddhist epistemologists. To understand the third type of object, the conceived, we must examine the process of conceptual cognition. And brief conceptual cognitions involve mental objects, such as the conceptual conceptual image of a pot, as presented in the thought, this is a pot. <laughs> We've been there. We've been here before. This conceptualized pot is both the appearing object and the observed object of that conceptual cognition. Right? So there's, there's no outer object that is projecting observed features into the conceptual cognition because the conceptual cognition is a closed system. It's looking at itself, right? And that thought of a pot appears in the mind and it's the observed and the appearing. I wonder if we get rid of appearing there in conceptual cognition. And just have observed. No external. Or or vice versa, you know, just have one of them. Uh, or or just well, like replace so, yeah. it would how about better what I like better is sometimes I've seen it that a conceptual cognition does not have an appearing object or a, a observed object, but it has a conceptual object. <laughs> and uh, that would be I'm looking for a pot. But I haven't seen one yet. <clears throat> well, looking for po the, the way they're using conceived object is the so-called outer phenomena. Right. But uh, let's say conceptual image, like I have a conceptual image of a pot, and that is the could be called the observed object and the appearing object. But it would be simpler if we had different terminology for the two. So in a conceptual cognition, we had the conceptual image is what appears in the mind. There's nothing that projects it in there. And then in the case of uh, it referring to a specifically characterized phenomena, that's the conceived object. And if there's a, if it's a conceptual image of a uni unicorn, <clears throat> 
actually in both cases there's a conceived object and in one case the conceived object exists and in the other case it doesn't so you could say conceptual cognition has a conceptual image and a conceived object and a, and a sense direct cognition has an engaged object that projects observed objects into the sensory uh, faculty that has an appearance of those. So you have a three-step thing and a, and a conceptual cognition just has the conceptual image and the conceived object. Yeah, I, that was what I originally thought they meant when they when I saw conceived was that it was actually just what we conceived, you know. In the mind, yeah. It's a little right, confusing. that would make more sense in a way. Yeah. I like your schema, you know, that, that seems like a good idea. Yeah, I kept with their terminology and made it the outer sort of thing. But that's yeah, it's a little weird. But anyway, all good. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so now let's. Uh, I think I have it on screen here. Here we go. Okay, the concept classification. Okay, go away. The classification of objects in terms of the way they are taken as objects, and this is in the Dudra. This was in the Dudra, and in the Natarta system, it was in the Dudra, and they didn't go over it until this book in this system of the Galuptas. Classification of objects in terms of the way they're taken as objects. Classification of objects in terms of the way they're taken as objects is threefold: appearing objects or apprehended objects. So they're using those terms uh, synonymously, appearing or apprehended, referent objects, and objects of engagement or objects of activity. So let's see how they've presented the system of objective, object experience let's say object experience has two types. There's conceptual object experience and there's non-conceptual direct. So the definition of an appearing object is that which can be known by its appearance. <laughs> they have a good sense of humor. A basis for definition is the object generality vase. And the fact that they use a, a conceptual object is a demonstration, a further demonstration of their sense of humor. Instead of using like an easy, simple thing, they use a more difficult example. But uh, the object generality vase is known by its appearance. So in the mind, we generate an image of a vase and we know it by the appearance of the vase. A referent object is that which can be known by conceptually referring to it. So it's exclusively the object of a conceptual cognition and a basis for definition to, to further the, uh, the uh, line of uh, humorous of humor that's being used here is the sitting posture of a human being staying in another house. So um, Mary Beth, do you have any neighbors? Do you have yeah. somebody that lives upstairs? Is she there? No. Okay, across I mean, the street you have some neighbors, right? Yeah. Okay. Are they lying down or standing up? <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, there are there are several, so they could. Yeah, yeah. Pick the one little ones, the little ones, the three-year-olds, the four-year-olds, they are probably lying down. They're probably supine. Okay, so um, we're conceiving, we're conceptually imagining their position, the posture, right? So that's the referent object. The definition of an object of engagement is that which is undeceiving when one engages in it for the purpose of using it or rejecting it. <laughs> Basis for definition, seeds, water, manure, warmth, and moisture gathered by a farmer, all of which are what type of phenomena? Specifically characterized phenomena. Right, so objects of engagement are, by definition, specifically characterized phenomena. But it's, can't a, I mean, a seed can also be a generally characterized phenomena, can't it? Um, uh, I mean, there's hundreds of different kinds of seeds. Not when they're. Um, if you're talking, I mean, it, if you were thinking they're talking about specific objects, physical objects, and things like that, but. These, to me, these are things that can go either way, you know? They, they can, but in, <laughs> you're correct. They can, and in this, but in this case, they're specifically characterized. And uh, this is my only way of demonstrating that, which is not ironclad. But uh, the, the alternative definition of this object of engagement is the main object to be cognized by a specific mind. For example, form the object of engagement of an eye consciousness. So I just happen to know, but the the definition does not. The base of definition does not. Well, it says gathered by a farmer. So actually existing. How's that? Seeds that can be gathered. So those are specifically characterized phenomena. The meaning of main object here is as follows. It's not just an appearing object of some possible mind. And the appearing object is that which is known by its appearance. <laughs> um, it's not just an appearing object of some possible mind, but it has to be an object that can be validly cognized by that possible mind. Therefore, an object of engagement of a factually concordant mind necessarily exists. So a factually concordant mind means a mind that's in tune with what's factually true, which can either be direct or conceptual. And, um, uh, but they're saying um, the object of engagement of a factually coordinated mind necessarily exists. So therefore, it's a specifically characterized phenomena that can be engaged through concept or senses. But an object of engagement of a wrong consciousness necessarily does not exist. So you can have a wrong valid, uh, you can have a wrong direct cognition. And you can have a wrong conceptual cognition, as I think we all know. A conceptual consciousness has both a referent object and an appearing object. 
the peering object is the concept and the referent object is what the concept refers to. But a non-conceptual consciousness only has an appearing object and no referent object. It also has an object of engagement. I don't know why they didn't say that. A factually concordant mind has both an appearing object and an object of engagement. I see. Uh, con uh, Non-conceptual consciousness has an appearing object but no referent. Referent objects only exist in conceptual consciousness. And then they're clarifying, they're, they're further uh, clarifying the types of non-conceptual consciousnesses both all of which only have an appearing object. A factually concordant mind has both an appearing object and an object of engagement, whereas a wrong consciousness does not have an object of engagement, but does have an appearing object. So <laughs> that was that was equally as confusing, right? <laughs> ideally we get the idea, ideally we get some um, feeling for the structure of perception and conception that it happens in these stages and uh you know one of the let's see the main some of the main points are that the appearance of a sense cognition in the sense faculty is not necessarily identical to the sense object we know that, right? It's it's our it's what re, is recreated in the sense faculty. Um, well, anyway, I, I think we should probably go on, and and we'll we'll revisit these terms as we go through this section and the following section, and hopefully uh, become more comfortable with them, and their significance will pan out further. Okay, on concept formation through exclusion 240. Although in part one, our authors pointed out that conceptual cognition is deceptive already. On the one hand, we ordinary beings must rely on concepts as expressed in language and thought to make our way in the world. Yet our thoughts and statements about the world, while useful for engaged action, invariably mislead us. in the introduction and they, and they mislead us into thinking that the appearing object and the object of engagement are the same that's the mis that's the mistake in the introduction to part 1 i noted the two ways in which conceptual cognitions are mistaken. First, they present their content, such as the concept fire, as identical to some real fire in the world. But unlike an actual fire, the thought of fire cannot actually burn anything, perform the function of fire. Second, the concept or thought of fire involves a universal, i.e. a general image, Generic image, uh, generally characterized phenomena. In Sanskrit, you see samanya lakshana. Lakshana, a lakshana is the object of a, of a cognition. And samanya means conceptualized, which amounts to an essence or fire 
the fireness that characterizes every fire. Yet Buddhist epistemologists maintain that this notion of fireness is simply a mental construct. In fact, there's no such universal, no entity that is exactly the same in any, any two things that we call fire. And we all have our own idea. We all have our own conceptual image of fire. Of fireness. Everything that we call fire is actually unique in every way, not all the same. So every fire that we've ever experienced, even though we, we, we say it, it possesses fireness, each fire is its own unique fire. Everything is perfect in its own way, right? Um, everything that we call fire is actually unique in every way, not all the same, even if by using that concept or expression we somehow are able to successfully achieve our goal of becoming warm. And do not confuse those entities with stuff that will make us cold. And so uh, making us warm is an example of achieving our purposes or our goals. That was in the, the uh, description earlier of uh, um, valid cognition of uh, identifying an object that can be used or utilized to achieve one's goals. Here the goal is to become warm. If conceptual cognitions are always mistaken, how can they reliably guide action? And the key to this question here lies especially in the problem of accounting for some sameness that enables us to use a single concept or expression such as fire for multiple unique things. If a Buddhist epistemologist falls in the forest, does that epistemologist make a sound? <laughs> if, if, as Buddhist epistemologists maintain, there is in reality no such sameness, how are concepts or expressions such as fire still successful in guiding our actions? The answer is the theory of exclusion developed by Dignog and Dharmakirti with further elaboration by others. The full details of exclusion theory are complex and far-reaching, and to act to, and to set the stage for the in-depth summary provided by our authors will be helpful to examine the term exclusion itself. As we've noted, Buddhist epistemologists reject the notion of any real sameness, what in Western philosophy would be universal, that characterizes every instance of, for example, a fire. Yet even though there is no real sameness, our cognitive systems are not simply constructing concepts out of some bad habit, <laughs> as Dharmakirti puts it. That's a bad habit, conceptualizing. But it's a useful habit. Instead, these concepts help us avoid what we think will inhibit our flourishing, um, while also helping us to obtain what we believe will promote our happiness. In short, we are concerned with desirable outcomes. Identifying something as fire is tied to my desire to get warm and engage with an object capable of making me warm. And with that context in place, my cognitive systems construct something that is, in, potent, in practical terms, the same for all fires, even though there's no sameness in the world. In other words, concepts have a certain utility to them, and yet they are mistaken. 
Although every individual instance of phi is completely unique, our cognitive systems can ignore the variations among those and instead focus on the way that each thing we call fire is excluded from all things that do not have the expected or desired effects. And this exclusion of that which does not have the expected goal-oriented causal capacity constitutes a sameness. So everything that has a certain causal uh, capacity is the, has a sameness to it, has that sameness. Thus, even though there's no real fireness that characterizes all fires, in my experience, each thing I'll call fire is different from other things that don't do what I expect the fire to do. Some of the tongue-in-cheek way of putting this to say that in terms of the things that we call fire, we can say that they are all the same and that they are not a not fire not a non-fire. That's the closest you can be come to a positive statement about concepts. They are not their opposite. <laughs> this statement, however, is not as simple as it looks, and this process certainly cannot be reduced to a mere logical double negation, which would be both trivial and pointless. Instead, this notion of exclusion only makes sense when we understand that it falls within a behavioral context where the formulation and use of concepts, whether expressed through words or not, is ultimately tied to our goal-oriented behaviors that end in a concrete experience of, for example, feeling warm. It's sort of like the leg on a chair breaks and there's like a pile of wood over on the other side of the room and you go through the pile of wood one one stick of wood at a time until you find something that resembles a leg of a chair enough and that has the same shape and size of the other legs and can fit it into the notch from the chair leg that you removed because it was broken and thereby it becomes a chair leg. The example of fire I've chosen is a traditional one, but it also has the advantage of easily invoking an experience. Near, nearly everyone has experienced cold and what it means to get warm. While the vast array of things that we can fit under these categories are varied, it's easy to understand how the point of that categorization is to achieve the goal of getting warm. Of course, we can and do develop higher order concepts that are less concrete in this way, but the claim of the exclusion theory is that those higher order concepts emerge out of a more basic system that serves to guide our embodied actions towards concrete goals that we seek. That simple exclusion of, I'm going to exclude everything that doesn't work as a leg of a chair. Finally, um, the thought of a fire can't make us warm, and uh, the claim here is that what counts is the real McCoy. Seven types of cognitions, a model of transformation. Maybe we can make it through this tonight. The introduction of conceptual cognitions involve distortions that do not come into play for perceptual cognitions. This is not to say that perceptions are simply pure, unconstructed encounters with the world. At all levels of analysis, Buddhist epistemologists acknowledge that perception is a highly conditioned process influenced by numerous factors. So even like direct perception 
is nuanced, such as the peculiarities of our embodiment, the context formed by our expectations. So our embodiment, are we humans? Are we insects? You know, different sentient beings perceive phenomena in different ways, much less what realm we're in. Um, uh, embodiment, context of our expectations, the acuity of our uh, sensory apparatus and our volitional capacities. Still, perception holds a special place in the heart of every Buddhist epistemologist. As we have seen, at a basic level, our conceptual system operates in a way that facilitates our goals, which themselves involve concrete perceptual experience such as feeling warm. The mere thought of warm is not enough. We want to actually experience in this way. Perception is said to be vivid. That term that we focused on earlier, spashta, in ways that thought or conceptuality is not. Importantly, this also means that perception can be harnessed to the project of personal transformation precisely because its vividness includes a visceral embodied encounter with whatever is being perceived. Right, and... Um, You know, you might, uh, never, never mind. Okay, I, th I think you get the point that like actually perceiving something is so much more powerful than, than even knowing it conceptually. Right. You know, the train, like there's a train crash and probably everybody dies and it's logical that that's what happened, but then you go and you see the dead body of a loved one, which, you know, to use a horrible example, but that is just so much more powerful than the thought. Okay. To take a key Buddhist concept, it's certainly laudable to have a conceptual understanding of the notion of personal selflessness, which is the most, you know, where it cuts right to the chase of the most important thing that uh, really that we need to understand experience such that i intellectually understand that even if it feels like i have some unchanging absolute autonomous identity that constitutes myself i do not in fact have that kind of self at all so i understand that intellectually as do you this intellectual understanding of selflessness can be helpful in reforming some of my dysfunctionality but an actual perceptual experience of selflessness where I viscerally, viscerally feel that lack of any such essentialized and unchanging self will have a much stronger impact on any beliefs and behaviors. This insight into the primacy of perception underlies the sevenfold typology that figures prominently. This typology harkens back to Chapa Hark. It's Chapa. It was renowned for presenting it. There are disagreements among Tibetans about some of the categories, but our authors chose to use the way that it was presented by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, since they're into him, which makes a lot of sense. And his way of presenting it is an extremely helpful way of, of understanding these seven. In this version, the sevenfold typology traces a developmental arc from being caught in the delusion of 
a fixed in, in this example a fixed and essentialized self or a belief in it and then gradually moving towards a transformative perceptual experience of selflessness the first stage involves the distorted cognition namely the firm conviction that my identity is immutable unchanging and autonomous but then perhaps under the influence of something i've read or someone i've met or something i drank i began to question this idea eventually a state of doubt number two arises and since the issue of my own identity is considerable importance i begin to freak out and i study this question intensely through my rational analysis i reach a point of correct assumption which is it's interesting the way the Dalai Lama presents this as sort of positive steps. Normally, correct assumption is like downgraded as like uh, still an assumption, but here he's tracing like the the path of experiencing the process of going through encountering the notion of selflessness in Buddhism, and like that's silly. You know, and then, well, why do they talk obsessively about it? Maybe there's something to it, and maybe I should look into it. And so you study it, and you begin to understand it intellectually. So you have a correct, so my analyses have not uprooted my doubt, but I'm starting to recognize that my previous belief in a fixed self is untenable. Finally, as I engage with the problem more, I'm able to have a truly valid moment of inference where I'm fully confident that I have come to the correct conclusion, namely that selflessness most accurately describes a key feature of my experience, where it's like finally it clicks, like you, you, you begin to understand the momentary nature of your being, the fact that we're made of all sorts of different parts, and you understand intellectually how that uh, is contradictory to the sense of continuity and wholeness and so forth and you're like oh yeah okay i get what they're talking about um <clears throat> and that's a pretty powerful experience that that uh, what is it valid what do they call valid inference the moment of inference these first four types of cognitions are all very much in the conceptual realm as holiness's way of interpreting them connects to a typical sequence within Buddhist contemplative practice that involves studying uh, or hearing, literally shruti in Sanskrit, uh, hearing, contemplating, and meditating. In a sense, the presence of persistent doubt is what gets it started in the serious study of an issue. And as we mull it over to completion, sorry, as we mull it over in contemplation rather we start to get an idea of where our analysis is headed finally we reach a point of conviction in that analysis which here would correspond to a well-formed inference but at this point we're still in the realm of concepts and we have not had a visceral perceptual experience that will truly impact our cognitive schema about the self as a result, our behavior will not change significantly. Instead, we must begin to meditate or focus on the conclusion to our analysis. And this enables us to have a sustained uh, subsequent cognition. Subsequent to that initial moment of uh, inference of like, yeah, that's right. And then we, we sort of repeat that feeling of 
what that initial insight was over and over again as we're experiencing the sort of normal uh, consciousness that we have in which the first moment of our inferential insight into selflessness is sustained in thought we then apply additional meditative techniques to focus one pointedly on that is sustained insight and we get slapped in the face by Tilopa's sandal and this leads to a direct perception of selflessness that moment of the direct perception of a transformative insight is visceral in ways that the intellectual understanding cannot be it and, and it re, uh, recruits our entire embodied experience not just our thoughts to the task of change it recruits them okay dharmakirti attempts to explain this point by citing cases that Many of us would understand, for example, I wake up in the middle of the night and hear a thief in my house, the visceral reaction I feel is dramatically different from merely thinking about a thief in the house. The point of Dharmakirti's example is not that a thief is actually in my house. Instead, Dharmakirti means that we wake up perhaps from a dream of thieves and then we have this visceral experience. Oh, there is a real thief. In a similar way, the long and intense process of contemplating selflessness when combined with certain meditative techniques can result in a visceral perceptual experience, perceptual meaning non-conceptual, that truly reorients our beliefs and behaviors. This stands in contrast to an indeterminate perception, which in this context would be a meditative experience that while vivid and even dramatic has no visceral impact on our beliefs or behaviors indeterminate uh, is uncertainty or something right what is it precisely because it's not emerging from or contextualized by a careful inquiry into a, a crucial issue such as the question of personal identity uh, they uh, they like the dalai lama's way of interpreting them because it uh, avoids some of the thornier details especially including the very status of indeterminate, the last one itself, um, which has all the complexities of like mistaken versus valid and, and so forth. In a direct and instructive way, it evokes precisely the underlying concerns of this model, i.e., how can we cut our beliefs and experiences in what way can our sorry in what way can our beliefs and experiences be cultivated to reduce suffering and enhance human flourishes <laughs> references john dunn first refers to his own book of course which is a great book and there's a new book that came out not too long ago on choppa himself and has the text translated in there text by him that's translated and then there's um, a book on a poha which is the philosophy of exclusion and then lastly on the last page there are 246 we see two sources stanford encyclopedia of philosophy you can look up online and find that article if you're interested and then there's the book mind in tibetan buddhism which has an amazing introduction by Elizabeth Knapper in it, which I have 
I am certain I have forced many of you to read at least once, probably many times. And it's a really wonderful presentation. I was actually thinking of using it for the review class at the end, it's just going through that chapter because it's so comprehensive and clear. And that concludes our session for tonight, even though we didn't get as far as we uh, planned, let's say. Comments, suggestions, uh, any offers to map out the different objects and their different schemes? Cynthia, want to take that on? Yeah, I was already thinking about it. All right, that's great. I, I, get, it. Schemes I get it, but don't ask me to repeat it. <laughs> yeah, ideally use the scheme in this book, but if you want to like compare it to other schemes to flesh it out, you know, once you get one scheme clear, then you can compare other schemes to it. And if you want uh, anything from me, let me know. Yeah, I, think... I have some that, or even, you know, just the references for ones that use different terminology and I can just try to line them up and do some compares after I get the first done. Yeah, get the first, and then I highly recommend uh, or request that it, you use the one by Elizabeth Knapper, that introduction. Okay. If you can't find that, let me know, but she has it in there, and it, it'd be I'll helpful. I have it. I can't remember. Any other comments? The, just that last bit there, when they say direct perception of selflessness, seems to me that's a little backwards. It would be more like direct perception without the self because there is no self so how could you directly perceive the self <laughs> you know what i'm saying it's like you have this experience of of direct directly perceiving things without a self i'm with you the galupa system actually says that the wisdom that uh liberates is a cognition of emptiness and that emptiness is the object of that subject. Wisdom is the subject and emptiness is the object. And so that you actually have a direct cognition of the phenomena emptiness, which seems absurd, but <laughs> that seems to be what they say, Cynthia. I was wondering in that earlier part when we were talking about all the different types of objects and they were talking about the object image and the subject image yeah and so in a sense that is part of the structure of our dualistic perception right it's the sort of uh, uh very essence of it yes so in a sense the experience of selflessness is the deconstruction of that the absence of that where that subject image is not there right nor the object for that matter right uh well, it, in the case that you're talking about, it's the subject and object image of the self. Right, but I'm just saying that that construct they were talking about is sort of relevant to this question too, is all I was really right. thinking. It, That's right, yeah. It, I like the way they described that because I think it, it kind of did make it clear how those things co-arise. Yeah, our... simultaneously, yeah. yeah. And uh, we'll see in the rest of the chapter, they have uh, interesting discussion of the difference of this system in the Vaibhashika, Sautrantika, and Chittamatra, which is helpful. And uh, so these nuances, this whole structure, 
and what then uh, Christopher went to of like how do you perceive selflessness comes up as a big issue when uh, you know the point of this year of like studying these preliminary texts was to get us a certain level of sophistication in the uh, foundational concepts that are then discussed in the text by Tsongkhapa and uh, Gorampa and Chandrakirti and uh, Mipam and so forth. That is the idea to study next year after we get through these and have a much deeper understanding of what they're arguing about. Emily. Um, that sixth one, the one that Christopher's just talking about, um, focus one pointedly on that sustained insight. Would that be the union of Shamatha and Vitashana? That would. That would be the sustained, uh, uh, stable insight into it. That's right. Yeah, and we saw earlier that uh, if you remember the the subsequent cognition, which is that sixth one, sustained subsequent cognition, is um, downgraded. Remember, it had like a a, a sort of a negative uh, pejorative status, right, compared to direct perception. It was like subsequent to direct, the freshness and newness of direct perception, you then have subsequent perception. But uh, it, it can have uh, efficacy in leading to that experience, even though it has that uh, secondary level of quality. Anyway, anything else? Thank you all for joining. Great to see you. Thank you, Dewi. Nice to see you. Really nice to see you. Hope things are well in Japan and Emily yeah. in New Thank Zealand. Nice to see you. Thank you, you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry I had a very hard time to get connected to Zoom. Thank you for your patience and thank you, Emily. That's great. Yeah, thank you, Emily, for helping her with the connection link. And thanks for everyone for being here. And uh, have a wonderful week. And I'll see you next week. So let's uh, dedicate the merit. By this merit, may all obtain it, attain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thanks, Derek. Good night. Quite a gong, I mean.